And our prayer is that your overcoming power would now save people who are lost and encourage people who are saved and help people through their trials and walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death and to bring them out in triumph and in glory and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today as we look into your word, I pray that you would give us an understanding, give us a hunger, and I pray that you would also satisfy us through your word and bless us so that our lives really are changed, so that our spirits are built up, so that our soul is fed, and so that we, as we leave this place today, can be better equipped to serve you, to honor you, to glorify you, to share you. And we do want to pray, Lord, as we mentioned earlier, for people who are sick and suffering. We pray for Lee and Cheryl, and we pray for Steve and Vicki. And uh, we also want to pray uh, for people that we have on our minds who just have kind of drifted away. And uh, we pray for them, Lord, that we would be a welcoming community and a fellowship of believers. And we pray that you would draw them back into fellowship with you, most uh, importantly, and also uh, in fellowship with the church. And we pray that during this season of the year that we indeed would see God and sinners reconciled. And this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would take your Bibles this morning and go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians and turn to uh, chapter 4 as we've been looking the last few weeks uh, here in December thinking about the gift, G-I-F-T. And uh, we talked about the first week that this is all about the glory of God. The incarnation, we try to insert ourselves in it way too early and way too soon, and we make it all about us. And it really is what the angel said. The sky was filled with the glory of God and the multitude of heavenly hosts, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then we also said it's about the incarnation. The incarnation, the meaning that God put on flesh, incarno, putting on flesh, God in flesh. And uh, to think that on that day when Gabriel made the announcement to Mary, Jesus stepped out of heaven at that point and entered a virgin's womb. Uh, so many times we think of him leaving heaven's throne and going into a, a stable in a manger. It's worse than that. He's entering the body of a sinner, and uh, there an, an omnipresent God empties himself the doctrine of kenosis in philippians 2 he empties himself to become down to the smallest unit of humanity in a womb and there he stays for nine months until he is born and it's an amazing thing and it's a supernatural thing and he did it so that he might save his people from their sins through his sinless life and his death on the cross uh, as we said last week, with all due respect to Harry Belafonte, man does not live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Christmas Day did nothing except start the process so that Jesus could live a perfect life to maturity and then die on the cross as the God-man and the unblemished lamb, the Savior that takes away our sins. And then today we're on the F and we're going to talk about fulfillment do you realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of so much prophecy? In fact, one man years ago who worked for uh, a major insurance company, he uh, took the probabilities of Jesus Christ fulfilling the major prophecies about him, and he said it is 
1 in 10 to the 17th, 17, 17th power. That's a 10 with 17 zeros following it. Someone else said one time that it would be as if you took um, uh, silver dollars and you marked one with a magic marker or a sharpie and then you mixed them all up and you covered the state of Texas three feet deep and in one try you pulled out the coin that you had marked. Odds are really slim on that because Jesus, if all he was was a human like us, he didn't have any control over his ancestry. He didn't have any control over his nationality. He didn't have any control over the time of his birth. He didn't have any control over the circumstances of his birth. And yet it was very clear that for Jesus to be the Messiah, recognized as a Messiah, he had to come out of the lineage of Abraham, be a descendant of Abraham, have Abraham's DNA, we might say. And he also had to come through the line of David and through the line of Solomon uh, in order to be here. He had to be born in Bethlehem and uh, yet at the same time he had to somehow come out of Egypt and at the same time had to be called a Galilean. Now, how do you get all three? Uh, it's just amazing when you think about all that the Lord Jesus did. But I think one of the greatest verses that we find here is in Galatians chapter 4 and uh, beginning in verse 4. And uh, this is not really a, uh, a dissertation on the birth of Christ or anything like that. But it is very explanatory and it's something that every Christian ought to think long and hard about. So if you're ready, we'll read together Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons or children. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So I am speaking to you today as a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, and I am speaking to my fellow heirs of God who also are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And just as God sent forth His Son, Paul says, when you were saved, God also sent forth His Spirit to live in you and to indwell you forever. And all of this is so that God might be able to redeem us. And he takes us as people who formerly were enemies of the cross, living for ourselves and sinning and not glorifying God. Now we've been changed, transformed, and by the presence of the Spirit in our lives, we're able to worship God, we're able to glorify God in everything that we do. And that really is the message that we find in the incarnation of Christ. Why did He come? Because we could not get to Him, and so He came to us. And the only way He could redeem us is to come to us, be one of us, and live as we live, except perfectly, and without sin, and die on the cross so that God the Father could punish him in our place, the innocent, 
for the guilty because if you had been on the cross, it would have done nothing because you deserve to be on the cross and you would be a guilty sinner hanging there on the cross. But Jesus could do something because as a God-man, he not only was innocent, but he was able to absorb the wrath of God. We call that propitiation. Absorb the wrath of God that you deserve, and then he could give you his righteousness in exchange. And this is what the world doesn't know. This is what the typical Christmas story does not explain and does not go into. There's a reason for all of this. Now, as we uh, kind of take these verses apart so that we can understand them better, I want you to understand there's a fulfillment uh, uh, in all of this with the birth of Christ because he came, number one, at the perfect time. Okay? Point number one, he came at the perfect time. Uh, we know this because in verse four it says, but when the, here's the phrase, fullness of the time had come. The word fullness there is the Greek word pleroma. And pleroma, we could use that to describe Oh, maybe a due date. You know, if you, uh, are, you find out that you're pregnant, you go see the doctor and they give you a due date. And uh, they tell you, um, you know, when your child can be expected. Okay? Now, they can't predict it with total accu accuracy unless they're doing a C-section or something. But uh, then, then perhaps they can. But uh, most of the time, it's kind of a guess. So in that res regard... Uh, due date doesn't quite fit it. Oh, unless you think about You remember when you used to go to a library and you would go in there and you would check out a book and you would open it up and in the front of that uh, book there was that little card that you uh, took out and you would hand that to the librarian. They would stamp that card and then they would stamp the little pocket thing that was in the book and that was your due date. That was the date that the book had to be turned in. You might uh, think about that with the IRS. They usually give you a due date when your taxes need to be in. Uh, all kinds of things that we think of like that. Now, pleroma here means the fullness of time. When everything came together at the exact moment, the exact timing, and the exact date. The fullness of time, the fulfillment of all of that. And so we know this about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, when that announcement was made to Mary and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ entered her womb, that was at the exact time, the moment, the fulfillment, the due date. It was the fullness of time for Jesus to come. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't like, oh, wait a minute, it's lining up. Do it now. It wasn't like that at all. This was planned <clears throat> by a sovereign God. Now, as to what the due date meant... We know that everything came together. What were all of those things? Well, certainly we know the things that the Bible would tell us. And we know the things that secular history would tell us. And so we can surmise some of them. But we also know there were things in the heart and the mind of God that we won't know until we get to heaven. And yet all of those things came together. Well, we'll look at it from what we do know. What we do know. We know that Jesus Christ is the one and the only one who could fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. It was very, very clear, and it was well known, and so Jesus met all of those. But I want us to think about some other things, too. Because when we look at the world, we sometimes wonder, does 
God really controlled the world? Well, of course, we would answer, you know, in church, and of course he does. But sometimes we read about things and we hear about things that we go, how in the world could that be happening? And what is this world coming to? And the, the theological answer is the world is coming to exactly what God wants it to come to. And that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the end of the world, actually. And it's all right on schedule, right on time, the way that it is supposed to happen. But it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it feels chaotic. It feels out of control. We wonder where some of these things came from. We wonder where some of these ideas came from. We wonder how far can sin go. We wonder how far can things spin out of control politically, economically, morally, all of those kind of things. And yet we have to stop and realize, no, wait a minute, this is all in control. God is taking this exactly as he promised, exactly as he revealed in his word, and we've got to understand that. And yet sometimes it feels so far-fetched, doesn't it, to think that God would be in control. And some people flat out reject it. Well, when we go back into history and we look back at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, things were happening, and they weren't just happening among the Jews. They were happening among the, the known world at that time. As you know, there had been empires that had ruled the world, basically four of them. There was the Babylonian Empire. That's what we study about during uh, a good portion of the life of Daniel when uh, they, they were basically from Iran. And so Iranians were ruling the world. The Babylonians or Chaldeans, the King James says. And then later they were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Media was a, a nation and so was Persia. So it was kind of a conglomeration of nations that defeated Babylon and uh, that Persian Empire based out of modern-day um, uh, Iran, uh, Babylon, uh, Iraq, excuse me, I think I said it wrong earlier, and Persia out of Iran. Those two nations have been at war for a long time. And then after that, a guy, you ever heard of Alexander? Alexander the Great. And so the Greeks took over, and uh, they dominated the world, and world thought, and world religion, and commerce, and everything. And then... Uh, the Caesars came along and the Roman Empire became the dominant empire, taking over the Greek Empire and kind of incorporating its thoughts and philosophies and ideas and even its religions and uh, Romanizing them, so to speak. And uh, that's why uh, the Greek god that's kind of the chief of the gods is Zeus. And the same guy is called Jupiter by the Romans. All they did was Latinize or Romanize all of that type of stuff. So that's the way the world empires went. At this time, when Jesus is born, uh, everybody that knows anything about the Christmas story, we know that the Romans were in control. We know that the one that was in control in Rome, sitting on the throne, was, according to Luke, it was Caesar Augustus. Uh, you also will find him referred to in history as a man named Octavian. He was the first one to proclaim himself to be some type of God, and uh, he was the one who was ruling and in control at that time. Now, I want you to think with me about what it was that the various groups that we find at the time of Christ that were dominant and it had been around and were still um, exerting influence, what do they contribute to all of this that gives us an understanding of the fullness of time. 
Well, I want you to think about the Jews themselves, going all the way back to Daniel in the uh, uh, Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. Daniel was among those that were called the wise men. Well, it's not a coincidence that in Matthew, it tells us that a couple of years after Jesus is born in the stable, the wise men came bearing gifts. They were the, in the original language of the New Testament, they were called the Magi. And the Magi, that's the same group of people that existed way, way back when Daniel was there. In fact, Daniel was the chief of the wise men or of the Magi. No doubt he told them about God. No doubt he told them about the promises and the prophecies of Scripture and the splendor of Israel and Solomon and David and all of that type of thing. So no wonder the Magi were looking in the heavens and as they were as they tended to do, and they saw a star, and they thought about the prophecies that were in the Old Testament, and that's why they went to go find him who was born king of the Jews. So the Jews had introduced to the world this concept of monotheism. All the other ones, they worshiped many gods. A god here, a goddess here, a god here, a goddess here. And they worshiped objects and statues and had all kinds of mythology. And uh, they kind of had the idea that, you know, whoever has the strongest god dominates the world. But there are many gods and they come and they go and they gain power and they get weak and all kinds of ridiculous notions like that. But it was the Jews even during the exile, even while they were under the chastisement of God, as we've been talking about in Sunday school, even during that time, they were bringing and introducing the world to the concept of monotheism, one God. And don't you know, some of those people must have said, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. What do you mean there's only one God? You know, only one, that's crazy talk. And yet it was implanted and it was there. And through influential people like Daniel, the idea of not only monotheism, but the idea of a coming Messiah and different things like that would be implanted among those who would be interested and who would listen. And the Magi were among those, of course, for all of those hundreds and hundreds of years from Daniel until the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the idea that there would be a coming king was something that was espoused by the Jews. And there was a lot during the nation of Israel here, there was a lot of messianic fervor about that time. And the reason is because Israel was dominated by the Ro uh, Romans, the Gentiles, and that was a shame to Israel. And it also brought uncleanness and unholiness into the Holy Land. And they wanted the Messiah and they prayed for the Messiah to come. And they pleaded for the Messiah to come so that he would throw off the Romans and cleanse the land and make it holy and honorable once again. They believed that the, even the dust of, that came off of Gentile boots from the other nations contaminated the land. And some had different thoughts about how to do it. The Sadducees said, we're not going to get anywhere unless we get along with these Romans. And so we'll get along with them and we'll string them along. And then someday we'll be able to do something politically about this occupation of our land. The Pharisees said, absolutely not. We cannot compromise. We cannot have anything to do with them. We must live holy lives. And out of that came even 
people who were the Sicarii, the assassins of Romans. They would sneak up behind them and slit their throats, thinking that if we can terrorize them, they will eventually be uh, driven out of the land. And they were hoping for a revolution. They were hoping for somebody to come along that could rally the people. And nobody could do that more than a king, a Jewish king, not an Idumenian king like Herod, not a puppet king like Herod, but a real, sure enough king that is a descendant of David. Oh, if one of those would come along, then the people would rally and we would overthrow these dirty Romans. So Rome was terrified about all of this because there was a lot of messianic fervor. The Messiah is coming. Prophecy is going to be fulfilled. We must look for him. And every Jewish mother had hopes that her son that she delivered would be the coming Messiah. Jesus, by the way, was our Yeshua in Hebrew, was a very common name in those days. And so that's why they had to call him not just Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth to get the right one because there were a lot of people that carried that name with the hopes that maybe this baby will grow up to be the Messiah sent by God to throw off the Romans. That's what the Jews contributed. Monotheism, the expectation of a coming king, and the messianic fervor and the study of prophecy and that type of thing. But you also find that uh, the Greeks contributed quite a bit to all of this as well. Why was this the perfect time? Because under Alexander the Great, they had come under a, they had instituted a policy. They called it Hellenization. You've heard of Helen of Troy? Hellenization. And that was the idea that we're going to make everything Greek. It's got to have Greek art, Greek culture, the Greek language, everything, Greek philosophy. It all has to be uh, based on Greece and come out of Athens. That's where Aristotle and uh, Socrates and all of these had come out of. That was the basis. All of the statues and artwork and even the gods and goddesses that the Romans worshipped came out of, out of Greece. But the one thing that they gave that superseded everything else is the Greek language became the universal language, much like um, English is today. You know, you can go virtually anywhere and you'll eventually find somebody who can speak at least some degree of English because that's the language that you have to know in order to do commerce around the world. It's a language of economics. It's a language of of uh, legality and treaties and all of those kind of things. Well, that's the way Greek was back then. So no matter whether you, wherever you traveled in the Roman Empire, if you were going to do business, you would do it in the Greek language, and everybody spoke Greek, some better than others, some more fluent, some more formal, and uh, some just common everyday street Greek, we might call it. But uh, why did this matter? Because whenever the story of Jesus was to be told in the gospel, what language did they write it in? The New Testament is written in Greek. Why is that important? Because virtually anywhere it traveled, anywhere these letters went, anywhere these stories went, anywhere the apostles went, they could knock down the language barrier by writing it and in speaking and proclaiming it in Greek. And so you can look at this and go, wow, this was the perfect time. There was this idea of monotheism given by the Jews and the expectation 
expectation of a king and a messiah given by the Jews. And the Greeks gave the vehicle for all of this. They gave the common language so that wherever you were in the empire, you could hear and you could understand the story of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a unifying concept in all of that as well. And then we think about the Romans. Well, what in the world did the Romans contribute? This is a time, they called it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And because of Rome's iron fist over the empire, over all of these races, over all of these nations that they had conquered, they were all at peace. And so you could travel during this time from one part of the empire, one nation, to another with relative ease. You didn't have to worry about starting a war. You didn't have to worry about being captured. You didn't have to worry about an international incident or anything like that because it was all under the Roman Empire under Caesar and Caesar enforced the peace. We don't want riots. We don't. Want... And that's why Rome was so concerned about uh, the birth of Jesus and the story of Jesus because that would stir up riots and revolutions and they didn't want that. Pax Romana. They wanted to have the peace of Rome over all of them, and they wanted it to be uh, taken care of. Plus, the Romans were tremendous engineers. You can go even as far as into Great Britain, and you can see Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall was erected in these early days by the ancient Romans, even in England. Their empire stretched all over the Western world, and they built walls and fortresses and all kinds of things, but they also built something else. They built roads. And some of the roads you can still walk on today when you go over to Italy and other parts of Europe. And these roads, well, the saying has always been, all roads lead to Rome. A tremendous, tremendous highway system. How does that help? Because it means that when the first missionaries, the apostles, went out, they had roadways. They had ways to get from the major cities. They had ways to get around the empire. And all of this facilitated the fast spread of the gospel and the story and the teachings and the doctrine of the early church and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the perfect time for the Lord Jesus to be born. This was the per perfect time for the church to be established eventually. This is the perfect time for these letters to be written that comprise the New Testament. And this is the perfect time for the gospel to go out into all the world. And so we think about these things and there's a ton of other things we could think about as well. But this kind of gets you to thinking about the pleroma. This was exactly the time that Jesus was supposed to come. This was the perfect time. This was the due date. This was the plan. And all of these nations, even though they didn't love God, even though they didn't know God, and even though these leaders didn't care anything about the Lord, what was happening? They were all cooperating with the plan of God and fulfilling the plan of God because this is the time for the Lord Jesus to come. And so we find that uh, this is the, the perfect timing in all of this. Now, secondly, you'll notice out of these verses the perfect Savior. Okay, Where did the Savior come from? Well, as far as people were concerned, they might say, well, he came from Nazareth, and you know 
the uh, disciple who said when he first heard about Christ, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Galilee was not well thought of, and Nazareth was particularly not well thought of, and yet that's where the, uh, the father chose for his son to be raised. And uh, he was known as a Nazarene. Series of events took them from Bethlehem to Egypt and then from Egypt to Nazareth. And uh, so that's where the Lord was raised. Not an easy place and a little more difficult if he's going to have any kind of prominence. He didn't come from Nazareth and yet that's exactly where he was from. And uh, we find that as we think about this, that wasn't just, even though they might say this is Jesus uh, of Nazareth, Jesus, the kid from Nazareth, so to speak. And yet we find out when we know the whole story, he really didn't come from Nazareth. He came from heaven. And he stepped out of heaven to come to earth. And he was raised in Nazareth. That's the plan. And raised there by choice. And uh, these verses here tell us that God sent forth his son. He didn't come from just among us, rising up among us. He came from heaven. He was sent down here. He was on mission. And uh, God was the one who sent them, sent him. His birth was planned. And uh, because he came from above, that means he had a different nature. And that means that he was on a particular mission. It wasn't just a life and let's see what the potential is. You heard in that film we watched last, ne- uh, last week, that video on abortion, where they, uh, the abortionists say that a fetus is um, someone with great potential, and the potential, pardon me, the potential to be a human, and uh, we who are in the pro-life movement biblically say, no, the fetus is a human being with great potential. Okay? Well, that was different than Jesus. Jesus came... And he was the fulfillment of all of this from the very beginning. Every part of his life fulfilled the will of God, brought the got glory to God the Father, and was perfectly in line. Nothing ever had to be adjusted. No, never, nothing ever had to be changed. They never had to go to plan B. Every part of his life, every moment of his life, was leading him to the fulfillment of all things, which would be his death for sinners on the cross of uh, Calvary okay and so uh, we look at him and we think about what John the Baptist said in John 1 29 the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because he is the perfect Savior God in human flesh the only one who could fulfill that he may not be the only one who could be Uh, king because Herod was king and Caesar claimed to be king and all of that but he's the only one who could be God's king he's the only one who could be the king who fulfilled prophecy and he's the only one who could also die on the cross in our place for our sin he's the only one that fit the qualifications to be the Messiah the Lamb of God that takes away our sin and thirdly we notice that he is the perfect sacrifice in order to be a sacrifice some things had to happen Okay, what had to happen? Well, the first thing, he had to be born of a woman because you can't nail a spirit to a cross. And so Jesus, if he's going to come and shed his blood for us, he has to have blood, first of all. And that blood is to be contained in a body, in a human body. And so we said last week that the main thing that we find in Luke chapter 1, it's a story of the virgin conception. That's where the miracle took place. His birth was just like everyone else's birth. 
and uh, his conception, though, that's where the miracle took place. He was born of a virgin, understand that. But the birth itself was a typical, normal birth of any human being. He came into the world in that way like we do. But his conception was completely, completely different, conceived uh, in a virgin's womb. So he's born of a woman so that he could be human. How much human? 100% human. 100% God, 100% man. The hypostatic union, God and man, put together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we also have to have something else. He has to be sinless. And so Paul says he is born of a woman. Look at the next thing. Born under the law. The weight of the law was upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The condemnation of the law awaited him if he broke any of the law. The same as it is on you and on me if we break any of the law. Jesus had to perfectly keep the law of God. So he's born under a law in a time when they knew the law, in a time when they talked about the law, in a time when they were trying to keep the law. And here comes this one man who is born of a virgin and born as a human God in human flesh, God incarnate. And he is under that law, that same law that all the Pharisees were, except one difference, Jesus kept it. He was under the law that all the commoners were under with one difference, Jesus kept it. He was under the same law that the priests and the Levites were under with one exception. He was able to keep it. But he had to come during that time and he had to face temptation. He had to face all of this just as we do and he has to do it without sin proving that he is the son of God. And the reason he did that was verse 5 not for himself but to redeem those who were under the law. Now, we're under the law a little bit different than Jesus was. Jesus is under the weight of the law. Will he fulfill it? It was a test of his Messiahship. We're under the law and meeting under the law's condemnation because we've already broken the law. And according to John 3, 17, we are condemned already. And Jesus is the one who came and lived that perfect life so that he might redeem us, buy us out of the slave market of sin uh, because we are under, we are owned by the law. And then it says that something else might happen. Not only are we going to be set free and redeemed from the slave market of sin, but this same one who is coming, Jesus, is not only going to buy us out of the market of sin, we're on the slave block. Think of all the horrible pictures you may have seen about American slavery and the auctions and what happened to African Americans when they were there humiliated and examined and treated like uh, cattle. We too were like that. And so this one comes along and purchases us with his own blood and buys us out of the slave market. Can you imagine how nasty and dirty and all of that we were because we were slaves. We were just a piece of property. Nobody cared. And yet when Jesus took us out of the slave market of sin, you know what he did? It says here that he adopted us as sons or as children of the Lord. Can you imagine? Not only did he show the kindness to buy us and take us out of the slave market of sin, and then he adopted us so that we are in his family. Now, in the Roman world, there were two ways you could be a part of a family. Number one would be to be born in it. You had the entitlement, they would say, because you carried the title in the name of your father. You were entitled. You possessed a title. Like in England, a lord, a lady, a duke, or 
prince or king or something like that. That's a title. They are entitled. That's where that phrase and idea comes from. Well, that could happen in Rome as well. And the Roman father had absolute authority over that child. When he would see the baby, he either gave a, a thumbs up to keep the child or a thumbs down, throw it out to the wolves. And uh, that was one way you could be in the family. And the uh, idea of being the firstborn in a family carried great honor because you had the title and you were the heir of the family's fortune and property and position in society. Except you could be disinherited. You could be kicked out of the family if you disgraced the father or were a coward in battle or anything like that. You were gone and you were out. But the second way you could become a member of a family in Rome was to be adopted. And the difference, you had the full rights of adult sonship when you were adopted into the family with the other thing being an adopted son could never be kicked out of the family. They could never be disinherited. And so when we find that the Bible talks about our birth and relationship in Christ, that we were born again, you must be born again, Jesus said. That's the natural birth. That gives us the nature and the title and the presence of the Lord. But also the Apostle Paul says, right here, we received adoption, which means not only do we possess the... Uh, 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 rights by birth to be a part of God's kingdom but being adopted we can never lose it the security of the believer is written all over this and that's the purpose of adoption so that we under the law who couldn't keep the law might receive the adoption as sons because when Christ died for us and you trusted him as savior a great exchange a swap took place he said, I'll swap you your sin for my righteousness. And we said, what a deal. And so we gave him our sin and he gave us his righteousness. And we're always qualified to be there uh, and be a part of the family of God. And by the way, this uh, term sons here is uh, the Greek word huios, which uh, tells us that our rights and privileges are not as a, a toddler son or not as an infant son, a child, but as an adult child a son with full standing and full inheritance and full entitlement and he does all of this for himself because this of course is for his own glory and then number four notice that it is the perfect redemption and it says in verse six and because you are these adult sons god sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out abba father and therefore, you're no longer a slave. You're not just a person in the, uh, the ranks or the services or the, um, you know, the, uh, what will we say here, the, uh, the servants, the whatever. Remember, Jesus even said, I don't call you a servant. I call you a what? A friend. And so we're exalted in all of this. That Yes, we do serve the Lord, but we do it from a different standing and a different position. And if a son, then we are an heir in other words, we're going to inherit the kingdom. We're going to share the kingdom with Christ, the Bible teaches. And that comes from God through Christ. So the price is paid. And then we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God himself, and given the status of a beloved child. And we become the children who will inherit the kingdom. Okay? There was an old Roman story which tells how a Roman emperor was... 
at once enjoying a great victory and great status in the Roman Empire. And he was one of those who, he had his title, but he also had the honor and the privilege of winning a war and being a declared a war hero and having a great parade and all of that. And he had the privilege of marching his troops through the streets of Rome with all of his captured trophies, prisoners of war, that type of thing, and his prisoners behind him, not to mention all of the money and the gold and the silver and treasures, anything else that he could get. Now, this emperor was marching with his troops and... Um, the streets were lined with cheering people and uh, the, the tall legionnaires lined the street's edge to keep the riffraff, to keep the people in their places. And at one point on this uh, triumphal route, there was a little platform where the empress and her family uh, were sitting to watch the emperor go by and all of the people and the pride and the uh, spoils of victory. Now on the platform with his mother was the emperor's youngest son, a little kid, just a little boy. And as the emperor came near, this little boy jumped off the platform, burrowed through the crowd, and uh, tried to dodge between the legs of one of those legionnaires, but he couldn't. And uh, he was going to try to run out to the road to meet his father's chariot the legionnaire didn't know who he was but stooped down and stopped him and he swung him up in his arms and said you can't do that don't you know who that is in the chariot that is the emperor you can't run out to his chariot and the little lad looked at the legionnaire and laughed and said he may be your emperor but he is my father you get the point and so this great God out of heaven sent his son in the fullness of time and had him to be born under the law just as we are so that he could conquer that and he could live it without sin. And so that he could do that so that he might be able to redeem us, to buy us back from the slave market of sin. You ever tried to stop sinning? You ever tried to stop a bad habit? You ever tried to quit something that you kind of enjoyed but you knew you shouldn't do? That's why whoever you yield yourself to, you become a slave of. And so we were slaves to our sin. But Christ, through his death on the cross, bought us out of the slave market of sin, took us out, cleaned us up, and then made us a part of the family by birth and by adoption and brought us into the family of God. And then the Spirit of God, God himself, was sent into our hearts. And the Spirit of God is drawing us to the throne of the Father, not pushing us away. Everything else says, stay away. Who are you? How dare you? Why would you think you could come before God after all that you've done? Except the Spirit of God himself is saying, come. Come to the Father. Come to the throne. Come and receive grace. Come and receive forgiveness. Come into the presence of your loving Heavenly Father. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. Back when we were in Texas, uh, Tylene Robertson's, I believe, uncle, a relative anyway, came and preached at our church, Ward Walker. And Ward was talking to us about this verse and he said, I never really understood Abba until I went to Israel. And he goes, and my wife and I were sitting at a table. 
And uh, next to us is a Jewish family with their yarmulkes on and all of that. And a little boy about five years old says this. He goes, Abba, pass the jelly. And he said, and then it dawned on me, that's the relationship we enter to, into with the Lord. We can speak to Him. We are free with Him. We are loved by Him. We are secured by Him. And He is interested in us. He has invested Himself in us. And we have a relationship where He's not just a generic father or a ruler or a king. He is all of those things. But to us, He is more. He is Abba, Father, Abba. Pass the jelly. That's how we work and relate with Him. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord today, I am here today to say I can invite you on the authority of God's Word and God's invitation into that kind of a relationship with the Creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. Will you repent of your sin today and put your trust in Christ and Christ only as the full payment for your sin, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessing him as Lord, master of your life? You can enter into that relationship. And then for Christians, I would say this. Does that describe your relationship with God? Have you entered into understanding who he is, what he has done for you, how much he loves you, and the power that he has placed within you, and the joy and the privilege you have of calling him Abba, Father. That intimate, close term, respectful. It's more than just Daddy or something like that. It's not that. It's very respectful, but it is close and infinite, and that's the privilege that you have because of Christ. Why? Because it's all for His glory. He is God incarnate and He fulfilled everything that the Father promised and planned for our redemption, which brings great glory to our great God. And all God's people said, Amen. You can have this peace. It doesn't come naturally. <clears throat> you can't earn it. You can't do anything to make it happen. God gives it as a gift through His Son, who Himself is our peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come to You today to say thank You for all of this. Thank You for what it means. And thank You, Lord, for the things that we're able to understand, even the things that we don't quite understand. They're still true. And I thank You, Lord, that we are able to enter into this close and personal relationship with You. And I thank you, Father, that that's all because of what you did and by your invitation and by your grace. Call people into your family today and let believers experience the peace that comes from our Abba Father because of what Christ did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.